Welcome to Sid Reach LA. My name is Josh Houston. I'm the lead pastor here. Um, I was I was thinking through at the beginning of the year. Actually, it was, I think it was December. I was starting to plan for the like the sermon series and and messages that we'd be doing throughout the year. If you've been in the office at our at our church office, we have this whiteboard up. It's, it's like the the trajectory of where we're going as a church, sermon wise, message wise. And as I was praying through at the beginning of the year, like God, where, where do you want us to go? Um, what do you want us to work through as a church? One of the things I really felt convicted about was not being the only voice that teaches. What I, I don't ever want to even subtly or unintentionally communicate is that if something's going to be authoritative, if something's going to be true, if something's going to be powerful, it's going to be anointed, it's going to come from Josh Houston. That's not it. This is a community of believers. Um, I'm not the only one who needs to be preaching vision. I'm not the only one who needs to be speaking truth, who's bringing people back to the voices of, of Jesus in, in our community. So um, throughout the year, we have different voices coming and preaching, and today is one of those days. Um, I'm very excited. Um, I, I talked with Diana um, a little, um, how long ago is that, a few months back? I was like, I really feel like Jesus wants you to preach at our church sometime. And she's like, oh, I've never preached before. I don't know what I would do. I was like, I'll work with you on the preaching side, just the content. Just start praying about content. And she came to me and was like, I have something on my heart. This is what I want to preach. And I was like, yes, bring this to the church. So it is with great joy today that I want to welcome Diana Wilburn to preach the message. Yeah. Thank you. I am really nervous. First of all, I've never done this before. I want to qualify a couple of things. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor. And this is not a sermon. Um, I'd like to share some things with you that I've found resonate in my life. I think some of you know that I go to Fuller Theological Seminary. And I'm working on my master's in theology. And there's some research I've been doing lately um, on encountering God in the dark. It's something we don't talk about very often, God and darkness. Yet as I re I've read more and kind of d dived deeper into this, I've found things that really resonate with me in my own life and I hope will resonate with some other people in their lives too. So today I'd like to share with you some of the things I've been learning about, reading about. Before I start, I'd like to share a poem with you by Wendell Berry. It's called, To Know the Dark. To go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark, too, blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. How many of us remember the sound of our mother's voices calling us inside as the sun started to go down? Come inside where it's light and where it's safe. How many people are mothers and are standing on the front porch at night calling out to their own children, come inside to the safety of the light. You see, as a kid, I was terrified of the darkness of night. I wouldn't go upstairs in our house by myself afraid of something getting me, some unknown intruder, some larger-than-life spider, and the ghost that I knew lived in the closet at the top of the stairs. I know as an adult that most of those fears were generated by other people telling me there were things to be afraid of in the dark. Nonetheless, I was terrified. Growing up, I remember always feeling a little odd the books I loved as a child, 
the places I enjoyed spending my time. Even my kindergarten drawings weren't what most people would have described as quite normal. One of my fondest memories was visiting my Aunt Mo in Florida, and we would go to the Gulfport Library. I would run to the children's section to find my favorite book. You can imagine my surprise last year when The New Yorker ran a story called The Creepiest Children's Book. It was my book. I didn't re recognize the book that they described as dark and disturbing because that had never been my experience of this book. This book for me was a place of joy, a place of peace, and a place of solace. In kindergarten, when I was asked to draw a family portrait, this is what I would draw. The whole family, pets and all, I'm up there too. I'm not sure why this was my drawing, but it was. And for me, it was again a place of joy. You see the sun is shining, the, the sky is blue. If that were a child today drawing that drawing, my guess is they'd be on prescription medication and in some kind of counseling. So I'm lucky I was a kid when I was. When I was a bit older and could ride my bike by myself, I had a purple Stingray bicycle with streamers on the handlebars and a plastic basket that had flowers in the front. I'd throw a book in and I'd ride to my favorite place, the graveyard. I'd settle in under the tree near the graves of my great-grandparents and I'd start to read, but almost always I'd end up talking to them, asking them questions about life, asking them if this is the way things were meant to be. And most of the time, as I look back, they answered me. Asking my child versions of the questions that Job posed to God, where is the place of understanding? You see, the places that I found and still find beauty and joy are often seen as others by others as dark. All of us encounter darkness in life. For some like me, these are places and things where you find beauty and wonder. For other, these dark places are places of fear and negativity. Barbara Taylor Brown is a former Episcopalian priest. Can you be a former priest? I don't know, once you're a priest, if you're always a priest. But anyway, she has a book called Learning to Walk in the Dark. She says, it seems clear that eliminating darkness is pretty high on the human ad agenda. Not just physical darkness, but also metaphysical darkness, which includes psychological, emotional, relational, and spiritual darkness. There have been documentaries made about losing the dark in the world as we race to fill every corner with the safety of artificial light. The thing most of us, aside from the lack of light, can't clearly define is the darkness that we really want to stay away from. Brown goes on to say that darkness for most of us is that which we fear. We are afraid of being afraid. In society, and often in the church, there is a way of speaking about light and dark that polarizes them, making one good and one bad. One the place you should dwell, the other a place of too little faith. We have been taught to pray, deliver us, O Lord, from the powers of darkness. Yet often the church has given us little preparation for operating in the darkness. 
for experiencing or even considering the beauty to be found there and relaxing into unlit places. The language of light and dark pits light and dark against each other. It puts all the sinister stuff on the dark side, identifying God with only the sunny part. It implies things about dark-skinned people and sight-impaired people that simply aren't true. Worst of all, it offers people of faith a giant closet where they can store everything that threatens or frightens them. Brown calls this full solar spirituality, a spirituality that denies or ignores darkness and negates any meaning or faith to be found there. We're told as, we, as long as we remain in the light, everything will be okay. Any encounter with the unlit, with the dark, is often met with the dismissive language of seasons and refining fires, without exploring or looking into the truly dismantling aspects of those processes. I started going to church about seven years ago, and often when I was having a difficult time, people would say it's the season of your life or you're in God's refining fire. So about a few years, a few years ago, I was working on an art project and I started doing some research into refining. I don't know if any of you have ever looked into it, but the refining process starts with absolute destruction. Gold is buried deep in the earth or inside of mountains, and to even get to it first, you have to destroy what's surrounding it. Then once you get to those veins of gold, you have to separate it from all of the debris. It's then melted down to purify it and get out other contaminants. And once it's pure gold, it's kind of useless. It has no strength. Things have to be added to it so it can actually be used for something. I understand the metaphor and the connection with God working in our lives, but often by throwing out that language, we leave people in the darkness of the destruction of their own mountains without seeing them through to the end where God is strengthening them. This type of opposition language works by placing the light half of reality nearer to God and the other further away. But the God of day is also the God of night. God doesn't put a closed sign out when the sun goes down. His call of safety comes in both the light and in the dark. In Genesis it says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God brooded over the waters. I grew up in a small town around a lot of farms, and I don't know if any of you have ever been on a farm and seen a brooding hen. Hens brood over their eggs, caring, caring for them and worrying over them and waiting for them to hatch. We brood over thoughts, incubating them and worrying over them in our minds. The spirit over the dark surface of the water brooded with deep care and concern. You see, darkness has always been here. I'm a big fan of the early Christian mystics, second, third, fourth century. If you ever see me at a party and don't want to get pulled into a 30-minute conversation about early Christian mysticism, you want to turn and walk the other way because that's probably where I'm going to take you. I'm not great at like small talk, and I tend to delve deep into subjects that a lot of people don't want to 
be involved in at a party. Um, why I love the early Christian mystics is that they embraced the darkness. They embraced the mystery of the darkness. They not only acknowledged darkness, but often sought it out, going to live under the vastness of the desert sky or to contemplate in caves. They had a very different way of looking at, speaking of, and living in darkness. They learned to rely on senses other than sight and found a type of light that transcends the wave and particle light that we rely so heavily on today. These mystics knew a word and knew a darkness called Arafel. You see, in the Old Testament, in Hebrew, there are two different words for darkness. This word, Arafel, is the darkness of, di di <laughs> is the darkness of divine encounter. It is the darkness of Moses on Sinai, the darkness that appears in David's song of deliverance, the thick cloud of glory that fills God's dwelling place. It is the darkness of the cave where Jesus was born, the darkness of that unknown Saturday, and the darkness of the tomb where he was brought to life again. It is the darkness that lies beyond and beneath. It's the endless universe and the song of the Leviathan. It is an encounter we rarely find in the full solar power of our world that keeps us safe and separate. Yet this isn't just a conversation about physical light and dark. It's about the vastness of the night sky. It's about dreams and visions. It is about the dark cloud of exodus and wrestling with angels. It's an unnatural darkness, a darkness that's both dangerous and divine, a thick inkiness that reveals divine presence and should be avoided. Whoops, that's not what I meant. And encourages divine risk. Sorry. We live in a world where we want all risks to be calculated. We want to know where we might be headed if we make this decision or that decision. We have things laid out in an if-then way. So we know if we choose this way, this is going to be a result. This way, this is going to be a result. But often, this way of thinking keeps us firmly rooted where we are, paralyzed, afraid to make a decision of afraid not to know where we might wind up, end up. We believe that not to know is a type of darkness and it should be avoided. When I was moving out here, the answer to most of the questions that people asked me was, I don't know. Where are you going to live? I don't know. What are you going to do? I don't know. What are you going to do after you graduate from school? I don't know. I got really comfortable after a time with saying, I don't know. But other people were never comfortable with that answer because me not knowing, I believe, raised questions of the, their own knowing. There was a mystic called Gregory of Nyssa. He said that those of us who wish to draw near to God should not be surprised when our vision goes cloudy. For this is a sign that we are approaching the opaque splendor of God. If we decide to keep going beyond the point where our eyes or minds are any help to us, we may finally arrive at the pinnacle of the spiritual journey towards God, which exists in complete and dazzling darkness. 
I love that image of dazzling darkness where we encounter God, but we aren't able to see or comprehend or understand what it is. To experience this, we need to be willing to leave behind everything that we observe. Not only that, we, that, that which we comprehend with our senses, but also all the ways we try to make sense of things. In the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, there's a scene towards the end, if you haven't read it, this is a spoiler alert. Um, the children have gone into a dark stable. From the outside, it looks like it's a pretty finite space. Yet, once inside, it's seemingly endless. You see, Narnia is coming to an end. Aslan keeps pushing and prodding the kids to go further in, to move farther in to the darkness, telling them to go deeper. Everything around them is loud and chaotic. When they glance over their shoulders, all they see is everything that they have known and understood falling out of vision, falling out of focus. Yet, Aslan continued to prod them further, deeper. As they went deeper, seeing all that they had known fade from vision, they finally looked forward, and through blurred vision and clouded eyes, they encounter a new world, unknown and unclear. All they thought they knew was changing, yet they had no real, they didn't really have another decision to make but to move forward. I think we often come to those places in our own life when we see that where we are, where we have been, isn't where we need to stay, yet it's so much easier to stay rooted in what's familiar to stay rooted in what we know. Often taking that divine risk is too scary. If we will keep pushing deeper though until our yearning for understanding and knowing gives way, if we'll continue into the dark and sometimes chaotic, it is often in the invisible and the incomprehensible that we encounter God. You see, this isn't just about darkness as we think of it. It's about giving up the need for a clarity of vision we think we have to have. The seeing of this darkness, this unknowing, is a seeing we aren't really used to. I believe this is the seeing we pray for when we pray for eyes to see, yet the seeing isn't the clear, single, focused point that we're used to. It is not the fully focused vision that we associate with clarity of thought. What we seek transcends all knowledge, all sight, and all comprehension. When Moses grew in knowledge, he said that he had seen God in the darkness. He said he had come to know that what is divine is beyond all knowledge and comprehension. I don't know if you've ever spent much time looking at works of art that are very dark, like Rothko, or this is a painting by a French painter named Pierre Soulages. He's in his 90s now, still painting, and he's painted over 1,500 paintings, which are primarily black in color. Curators and gallerists talk about the emotional response that people have to paintings like this one by Soulages or other paintings by Rothko or, or Rauschenberg. I think it's due to the dazzling darkness of unexpected encounter 
And you see, I think you approach a frame that's painted a dark color and there's no expectation. We don't see something we recognize that we can immediately catalog into the pigeonholes of meaning that we have in our life. And so our guard comes down and we are vulnerable to God entering our lives. Thomas Merton posed this question. What can we gain by sailing to the moon if we are not able to cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves? I believe allowing ourselves, being willing to peer at, step into, and experience the full beauty and wonder of darkness allows the crossing over of this abyss within. So, this may sound like a bunch of mumbo jumbo and you may be sitting there thinking, what the hell is she talking about? And so, so what does all this mean? In a time we when we believe that with the flip of a switch or the click of a mouse pad, we can see everything and know everything, I think it's a time for us to begin to unknow. A time to unknow all that we believe we know about race, about gender, about light and dark, about faith and God. A time to return to the mystery of darkness and unknowing. I think faith is a constant raveling and unraveling and God is in a place that you get to. And when we're always trying to get to that place, we never actually get to experience the true freedom of not having to know. My hope is that even for a moment, you will experience this freedom found in not having to know everything, that we can let go of thinking that we have to grasp God and simply know that we are grasped by God. That in this place of clouded vision, we can come to God, know that God is no thing, no fact to learn and tuck away, no neat and convenient answer to give to other people when they ask us about our faith. Here is the encounter with the no-thingness of God as opposed to the nothingness we most often associate with darkness. So what might a world like this look like? A world where we are willing to try to let go of our, ex our expectations of what we think we know about the other, about darkness. What would it look like to live in a world, experience a church where darkness is discussed and seen as a wonder of God? What would happen if we allowed ourselves to rest in the embrace of that brooding spirit that dwells within? What if we were willing to try to unknow the things that we depend on that keep us only in bright light? I invite you to consider unknowing what you think you know about God. Consider letting go of making God something you have to understand or see clearly, and I believe you will find a freedom there that is hard to find anywhere else. In letting go of the thought that we have to understand, perhaps we will come to know that we are understood, to let go of the need to constantly try to grab and hold on to faith and maybe find that we are being held to let go of the need to assign meaning, judgment, and value to people, places, and things, we may find that we are valued. The next time anxiety begins to creep in as the sky darkens, when worry comes knocking as the sun sets, call a friend and ask them to go on a walk in the dark with you. Look for the divine beauty found there. 
If you have kids, rather than calling them inside at dusk, meet them outside at night and walk through the nighttime with them and, and show them the beauty of the night sky. Let them know that God's also there. Many years after I'd moved, I was visiting home. I grew up across the street from my grandma and grandpa. I was staying with my grandma, and she must have been in her mid-90s by then. And we were talking one night, and she said, Diana, I always knew you'd leave here. I said, you did, Grandma. How'd you know that? You were always a little odd, she told me. You see, I know now that I am grounded in darkness. This is where I most fully encounter God. This is where, when I let my vision blur, when I gaze through squinted eyes, I feel his presence and his freedom. As we prepare for a time of response and contemplation, I'd like to share a final, final poem with you by Mary Oliver. Someone I loved once gave me a box full of darkness. It took me years to understand that this, too, was a gift. Would you join me in prayer? Lord, thank you for your darkness, for the beauty and wonder of night skies and dark caves. Thank you that when we end up on roads that go through dark forests, that you made these two and let us encounter you there. In those things or places in life that we may see as dark, blur our vision so that we may find you in the eyes of the homeless man, in the beauty of a gravestone. Help us find freedom in the vastness of the night sky. Let us remember that then there was night and then there was morning. Amen. If I could invite uh, members of the prayer team to come up and enter a time to response um, to the word that we heard this morning. Thank you so much, Diana, for that word. Um, I don't know where you were at this morning in terms of meeting God in the unknown. Um, whichever way the Spirit is speaking to you, we'd like to call you to respond even as we sing this song. Um, I have two uh, of our leaders up here in front here to offer you prayer if you'd like. Uh, you could respond in contemplation or you could respond uh, through the song that we're about to sing. But uh, come before God now. Use this time to really hear and contemplate how the Spirit is speaking to you through the message this morning.